So last Sunday, we began looking at the story of Daniel in the lion's den. And in that uh, message, we left dangling a question about civil obedience or disobedience, as the case may be. And uh, we had promised that this week we would investigate that a little more thoroughly. So that's what we're going to do. We'll kind of go back over the story of Daniel in the lion's den just very briefly, but then highlight some points we didn't touch on Last week. So grab your Bible if you haven't already. Open up to Daniel chapter 6. Daniel chapter 6. Father God, we are so thankful for just a beautiful morning you've given us to gather together. We're so grateful for the rain uh, in amidst this heat that we've had. But God, we're grateful even more for how your grace rains down upon us. And we just. Uh, Pray this morning, now during this time uh, of the preaching, that your spirit would work in our hearts, in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Darius uh, was the new king of Babylon. The Medes and the Persians had uh, conquered the land, and and, uh, he decided to reorganize uh, the government by appointing 120 satraps, which would be like, you know, regional uh, overseers, and then three commissioners over the top of them, with Daniel being one of those three commissioners. Uh, But Daniel uh, impressed the king so much with his, his work ethic and his abilities, his attitude, his spirit, it says, that the king decided he was going to appoint Daniel as head over all of them, uh, effectively making him the number two guy in the kingdom. And of course, this upset the rest of the leaders who didn't like this foreigner coming in and taking this position of power, and they decided they were going to get rid of Daniel. And they first thought they could do that by, you know, doing this real thorough investigation into his life, looking for some fatal moral flaw or some work negligence, but they couldn't find anything, not even a hint uh, of impropriety with which to accuse Daniel. So they determined that they would trap him, and and the only way they could trap him, they figured, was by uh, attacking his faith, because they knew that Daniel... um, His faith was so important to him that he would not allow anything to deter him from worshiping uh, and following God fully. There would be no compromise in this area in Daniel's life. And so they concocted a plan where for the next 30 days, nobody could pray to anyone other than King Darius. And, And failure to comply would be a capital offense with the means of execution being uh, a night's lodging in the lion's den. And uh, so they convinced King Darius uh, to sign this proclamation into law by lying to him, by, by telling him, oh yeah, everybody loves this idea, everybody's on board with it, uh, neglecting to tell him that it was against Daniel. And once a law had been signed, according to the law of the Medes and Persians, it could not be revoked, it could not be changed, even by the king himself. And so he signed it into law, and then now that brings us up to uh, these points where we want to really begin concentrating today on some specific details, because look at what it says in verse 10. Now, when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he entered his house. Now, in his roof chamber, he had windows open toward Jerusalem, and he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day and giving thanks before his God as he had been doing previously. So here we have this this man of God willfully choosing to disobey the law of the land. 
Now, is that something that we as Christians can do? Or, or anybody? Can they just kind of pick and choose which laws they want to obey and, and then neglect the rest of them? Or is that even what we have going on here? Well, I, I mentioned last week, just very briefly, that as Christians... We are called to be good citizens uh, of our country. But we have to understand, that's, that's not just talking about us as Americans, right? I mean, the Bible was written for every person living in every country all around the entire world. And so that means if you are a Christian in Moscow, you should be a good citizen of Russia. If you're a Christian living in Beijing... You should be a good citizen of China. Now, obviously, what it looks like to, to be a good citizen uh, as a Christian in Saudi Arabia or China or Russia is going to look different than what it means to be a good Christian in a place like Canada or United States or Australia. But the truth is still the same. You're called to be a good citizen of the country where you live. The, the prophet Jeremiah was writing right before this Babylonian um, invasion. And then during all three invasions when Babylon came into Israel and even for a few years afterwards. And listen to what he says. He gives this command in Jeremiah 29.7. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you, this is coming from God, so the I is God there. God is saying this, where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for it in its welfare, you will have welfare. So think about that. That this was written specifically to people like Daniel who were being carted off, taken captive to this hostile foreign land. And Jeremiah tells them, hey, this, this place where, where God is go- sending you, where you're going, be a good and productive citizen there. Because ultimately, it is to your benefit to help that country be good. If they went there and they were sowing discord and division and anarchy, it would create a troublesome and harsh environment for them to live in. But if they would seek the welfare, is what it says. And and that means, you know, actively doing positive things like obeying the law of the land and being productive, fruitful members of society and, and then also praying to God for the benefit of this place where you're living as a captive, right? Where they're living, that helps everybody. That's going to make it good for everybody. So that's what we're called to do as followers of God. And and I think there's an obvious application for us as Christians, right? No matter where you might be living in the world. So point number one for us today, we are called to be good citizens. Again, wherever you're living. Now, for us, that means being a good citizen of Hot Springs, of South Dakota, and of the United States. And that means we should be praying for our leaders and praying on behalf of our community and our country. It means that we have the opportunity to be involved by voting because we have that privilege in Hot Springs in the United States. Or, or maybe even taking the next step of involvement and, and serving. I mean, I am so thankful. We've got 
many members in our own congregation who are serving. George Cotty as mayor, Sam Powers on the city council, Paul Napoltz on the county commissioner, Kim Henningsen on the school board. There's, I, I hope I don't miss anybody. There's ways to serve our community, and, and that's a, a great and, and, and powerful thing. Being a good citizen also means being a good employee wherever you work. So that particular business or institution may prosper. I mean, have you ever thought about praying for the company you work for that they would prosper? That's what this verse is telling us to do because, you know, if it prospers, it elevates you and helps you, which elevates all of us and helps all of us. And that's especially true if you happen to work in one of those institutions that serves the public, like our school teachers or the VA or a hospital or this type of thing. Now, another part of being a good citizen means respecting authority. As First Peter 2.17 says, Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king, or literally it's the emperor there. And to honor means to show the proper respect. This respect is supposed to be for political authority and civil authority. And, and Peter makes that clear in verses 13 and 14 when he says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake, you know, that's why you're doing it, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether a king as one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise for those who do right. We, we are to submit, and that means to obey these authorities. And, and notice in verse 13, it says what? Every human institution. So it's not just talking about the government there. My, my parents very wisely taught us kids, that means respecting and obeying Whoever is in charge of us, whether that would be the school teacher or the, and the principal or, or our babysitter or the Sunday school teacher or the coach or the boss, whoever it is. Now, as parents, of course, they had the duty to kind of vet who they would put in charge of us. That's their responsibility. But they taught us we have to respect that authority. As Christian, you know, I don't know how many of you have ever been around a little kid and you're supposed to be doing something with them or watching them and stuff, and they put their hands on their hip and say, you're not the boss of me. As a Christian, we don't get to say that. We, we should be teaching that respect for authority and, and where it's at. Now, along with respecting authority, being a good citizen means obeying that authority. Last Sunday... We noted those verses in, in Romans 13 that command this. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For the, there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. And therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. We are to obey the laws of the land. Because God is the one who instituted and set up the institution of government. So you can't say, well, you know, hey, if it's a good and, and godly government or ruler, well, then I'll obey them. But if it's not, I'm not going to. 
I mean, when Paul wrote this, when Peter wrote his commands, they were written under Roman emperors who were anything but good and godly people. In fact, Peter, when he wrote his telling us to submit and honor the king or the emperor is the word there, Nero was the emperor who was, who was reigning at the time he wrote that. Nero was a very evil man. But both Paul and Peter give us a reason. Here's the reason why. This is why you do this for respecting and obeying government. And Paul said of the government this, for it is the minister of God to you for good. Okay? Government has the job of ordering society and keeping it from falling into anarchy and chaos. And even an ungodly government like Rome or communist China you know, allows the people to live and to work and to raise families in an atmosphere that's not in chaos. Uh, Peter gave this reason. For such is the will of God, that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Now remember, that's in the context of why we should obey government in, his, in that same context where he said, be subject to the governing authorities. By, by being good citizens... We keep ignorant people who want to badmouth and bash Christianity from having any real accusation for their, uh, or any real basis for their accusations. Though, though that's why we're called to obey, those, those two reasons. Now, getting back to Daniel. For him, that meant being a good citizen of Babylon, praying for the king, and being a good worker in the king's court, because that's where he was assigned to work. But, I mean, King Nebuchadnezzar may have thought he was assigning him to the king's court, but, you know, God was in control. That's, that's where God had put him. And Daniel did those things very well up until now when we reached this point where he blatantly chose to disregard this new law that said he couldn't pray to anyone except for King Darius for 30 days. And he knew, the verse 10 says there, he knew that the law had been signed, so it's not like he could claim ignorance. And yet he went to his house and kept praying anyways. Now, why would he do that? Well, the answer is, is really very simple. And it brings us to the second point for today. The law of God supersedes the law of any man or government. Or if we wanted to put that another way, we have to do what God says, even if it goes against a law of man. Now, God instituted the idea of government. He gave it for our good and our welfare. But man being corrupt and sinful will invariably create corrupt and sinful governments or, or any human institution, right? Now, overall, we're still supposed to... to um, they, they have the job to act to preserve us from anarchy and chaos. So we're you know, still supposed to submit to them. But there are times when that government, in its sinfulness, may enact a law that contradicts the word of God. And in such a case, we are called to follow God's laws. A prime example of this from Scripture happened very shortly after the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ and the, and the uh, uh, apostles and Christians had been given their commission to, to go into all the, the land and preach the gospel. And in Acts chapter 4, Peter and John were arrested for preaching the gospel to a large crowd that had gathered after they had healed a lame man. And they appeared before the Sanhedrin, which was the highest law in the land of the Jews, 
not counting Rome, because they didn't like to count Rome. They liked to do their own things, right? So they were the highest thing. I mean, they were the executive, the legislative, and the judicial branch all wrapped into one. And these, at the end of their hearing, as they had Peter and John before them, these guys commanded Peter and John not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus Christ at all. You can't do it at all, they said. And this, of course, is a a, a blatant uh, contradiction to the command from Jesus to spread his gospel into all the world. And so their response was this. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. So in other words, what they were saying was, hey, we're not going to stop talking and teaching uh, uh, about this because it's what we know is true. It's what God has called us to do. And you guys, being religious political leaders, you tell us whether it's right for a person to obey your man-made laws or God's laws. Well, the Sanhedrin, they didn't like this at all. They got mad. They threatened them, and they told them, you can't teach or preach anymore in his name. Uh, But Peter and John and all the rest of the apostles, they went right on obeying Jesus and spreading the gospel and preaching it. And so they were arrested again and brought before the Sanhedrin, and they said, hey, we thought we told you guys not to do this anymore. And then this time the apostles were even more firm straightforward and blunt in their response. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. As Christians, we answer and are accountable to a higher authority, a higher law than the law of the land. And we must obey God rather than men. That doesn't mean, though, (laughs) that we get to pick and choose what laws of man we will obey and which ones we don't. Just because we don't like a law, or even if we think the law is unjust or, or unfair, that doesn't mean we get to disregard it. I mean, after all, point number one, right, was we are called to be good law abiding citizens. From what we can see from Scripture, as you study Scripture, there are only two circumstances in which we are allowed to defy the law of the land. One would be if the law commands you to do something which God says you should not. That was the case for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? The king's command was for them to bow down and worship this golden image, this idol that he had made. But the clear teaching of Scripture is you cannot do that. So this law was trying to make them do something that the Bible says you cannot do. And and they rightly refused to obey that law. So if our country or our state or our city was to enact a law which required us to do something that was against God's law, then every true Christian should refuse to obey that law. Now, again, we have unjust laws that I think we should work within our system to try to change. Abortion might be one of the main ones that we think about in terms of that, just an easy example, right? But, but the law does not require us as a Christian to get an abortion. If, if a, a law was inqu- required then that's the point where we could uh, disobey. Of course, what that means 
is you also have to then be prepared and ready to suffer the consequences, to pay the fine, to do the time, or even to pay with your life. The second situation in which it's okay to defy the law of the land is when the law forbids you to do something that God calls you to do. Okay? First situation is when it requires you to do something that the Bible says not to. Second situation, when it forbids you to do something that you are called to do. And that's the case that's before us with Daniel here in prayer, right? God calls us to pray. Prayer is not just an optional exercise that we should take advantage of whenever we feel like it. It's, it's something that God says, this is what I want you to do because this is how we build a relationship with God. And Daniel had made a habit of praying three times a day. Now, nowhere in Scripture was there ever any command that you have to pay th- pray three times a day or five times or any specific number. In fact, there's no command anywhere in Scripture uh, about how frequently to pray at all, except for, of course, 1 Thessalonians 5.17, which says, pray without ceasing. But that clearly doesn't mean that we have to stop every other activity in life and do nothing but pray, because if we did that, we couldn't fulfill any of the other commands of Scripture. What it means is to have an attitude of prayer all the time, this, this co- constant communication with God through just casual conversation all day long. Um, and and I, hope, I, I do that. I Hopefully many of you do that. Just whatever you're encountering through the day, you, you relate it back to God in conversation. So I'll just give you an example. This Monday night, I, I got a call last Monday, and I was up to camp helping with sick kids. And, uh, and uh, when I first got a call and got there, we didn't think it was nearly as bad as what it turned out to be. And as the night went on, uh, things got worse, and I found myself frequently praying. I did not start my prayers by saying, Dear Jesus, and did not end by going, Amen, right? It wasn't that kind of prayer. It was just talking with God as we're going. And, and I'd be, you know, here's one kid. Uh, uh, how do I say this politely? Uh, blowing chunks. He, 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 one kid heaving on one side of me and one on the other. I'm saying, oh, God, help these kids. You know, that, that type of prayer. Three o'clock in the morning, four o'clock in the morning. God, give us strength because we're going on and doing this thing through it. Kind of selfishly. Oh, God, please help me not to get sick. You know, I mean, uh, you, you know, you're doing these things uh, as you're going through this. That's what praying without ceasing is talking about, just this, this attitude of prayer all the way through. But, but along with, with that kind of constant attitude of prayer, there, there are, we, we can and should have what we might call a formal time of prayer, a, a, a time when we set aside everything else, all other activities, and focus specifically on communing with God, bringing Him our praises and our requests, our petitions, thanksgiving, all those things. This is a very specific time for praying. And that's what Daniel was doing three times a day. And maybe he decided to do it three times a day based on like Psalm fifty-five, seventeen, where King David said, evening and morning and, and noon, I will complain and murmur, and he, he being God, will hear my voice. Now, he used the words complain and murmur because if you read that psalm, there was some bad stuff going on with enemies and, and he was upset, so he was complaining and murmuring to God. But verse 1 of that psalm makes it clear. He's talking about prayer. He's praying uh, to God. Uh, and, and so maybe 
Daniel thought, well, if three times a day is good for King David, that'll be good for me. So he maybe set it up. Whatever it was, it was his habit. It's what he had designed for himself to do. And and that's what gave Daniel's enemies the chance to catch him. Now keep in mind, as we go through this, Daniel was not, not showboating or flaunting his disobedience, right? He, he knew that the law had been signed, but he did, it's not like he went out to the city square, right, during rush hour uh, and, and, and fell down on his knees and raised up his hands and shouted out so everybody could hear, hey, God, I'm praying to you no matter what those numbskulls back in the court uh, declare as a law. He, he, he didn't do that, right? L- look at verse 10 again, what he did. Now, when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he entered his house. Now, in his roof chamber, he had a window open towards Jerusalem, and he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God, as he had been doing previously. He he went to his own private house. And and then even in his house, he went to this upper roof chamber. I mean, the, the only access for people to have been able to see him at all would have been through that small window that was left open. And you think, well, why did Daniel leave the window open? And the answer is, we don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. Perhaps, perhaps he based it on the prayer of King Solomon. In First Kings chapter 8, Solomon is, is, has this lengthy prayer where he's dedicating the temple that has been newly built to God. And Solomon spoke at that time of the possibility of the people of Israel disobeying God and suffering the consequences of God's discipline, which is exactly the position Daniel was in, right? And in his prayer, he talked about the people praying toward this place this place being the new temple, or, or opening your hands toward this place. Now, that's not a requirement. The, the Bible doesn't say you have to pray towards any specific location because prayer is to God and God's everywhere, right? It's just a description of what they could do. But maybe Daniel decided, hey, I'm going to do exactly that. I, I, I'm in this foreign land. I'm going to pray towards Jerusalem. So he had this window open so he could do that. Regardless of what his reason was, he was in the privacy of his own home in this upper room uh, that would have been hidden. He would have felt safe and secure in what he was doing, even with his window open, because the only way someone would be even to see him and know what he was doing is if they were purposely spying on him, which, as we know the story, they were. So Daniel didn't flaunt his disobedience, but he didn't take any special precautions either. For him, it was just business as usual. And that tells me that he was not going to make an idol out of personal safety. And you know what? If we're going to follow God with character and conviction in this world, we have to make that same choice. Point number three, don't make an idol out of personal safety or comfort in your life. You know, God never promised. I, you know, we don't coordinate these things, but somehow God seems to know what's going on. Just as Jan read in her poem this morning, God never promised that following him and obeying him would be safe. In fact, just the opposite is true, isn't it? It's not always safe. Or comfortable to take the gospel to our friends 
or our neighbors or to the ends of the earth. But that's what God's commanded us to do, isn't it? It's not safe or comfortable to stand for the truth of Scripture in a pluralistic and relativistic world that we live in. But that's what God's commanded us to do. It's not safe to follow Jesus in a world where people hated Jesus enough to crucify him. Perhaps that's why we're told, indeed, all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's risky being a Christian who is committed to following and obeying God. So, wrapping this up, as Christians, we are to submit, to be subject to, to obey those who are in authority over us, whether that's uh, the government or some other human institution. But there will be times when we are compelled to disobey. And that's when we're told to do what we should not do or when we're forbidden to do what we know we should. And it takes courage to obey God in those situations because there may be consequences for those actions. Children are called to obey their parents. But I sat in my office and listened to the story of a woman who said that when she was a little girl, her parents would park in front of the gas station and tell her to go in and steal cigarettes for them. She was invited to go to Sunday school with a friend of her, and the parents were, yeah, great, get her out of the house Sunday morning. So they let her go to Sunday school, and she came to know Jesus Christ as her Lord and Savior. And as she went to Sunday school, she found out that stealing was wrong. And so the next time her parents sent her in to steal cigarettes, she refused, and her mother beat her bloody. There's risk in obeying God. Students should obey their teachers. I've told the story in here before about my 10th grade English teacher who, after having us read the book Childhood's End, required us as students to write a paper entitled Why I Believe in Evolution. And with my parents' permission, I turned in a paper entitled Why I Believe in Creation. And she took my paper and read it in front of the class and made fun of me in front of all the rest of the students. There's a risk in obeying God. The law in China requires moms to get abortion if they've already had two children. And there are numerous cases of Christian couples fleeing their homes, their families, forsaking everything in order to disobey this law. There's a risk in obeying God. But we cannot make an idol out of safety and comfort and faithfully follow God at the same time. We take risks knowing there may be consequences. Like Daniel, you may get thrown into a den of lions and sometimes God intervenes and saves his saints in miraculous ways. But there is many a faithful Christian 
who was torn apart by lions in Rome's Colosseum or burned at the stake as a heretic or beaten and killed by angry mobs. It's always a risk to follow Jesus, but a risk that is amply rewarded by him in eternity. So if we're going to be good citizens of the land, wherever that land is that we live in, we need to seek the welfare of that place. Do what we can for its benefit. Be good, solid, productive, fruitful citizens of that country. But we must also never forget that our true, our real, our, our permanent citizenship is in heaven. And we have to live for the reality of eternity and heaven, not for the safety and comforts of earth. Let's pray. Father God, again, we just thank you for this book of Daniel we've been able to look at, for Daniel's life, his character, and what we can learn from that. Because this is so relevant and up-to-date for us. God, we do want to be good citizens. We want to silence the hateful speech of ignorant people against Christianity by being good people, good citizens. But God, we want to obey you. And in obeying you, we know that that may at times mean defying. Help us to be wise in that, to look for the options that would allow us to faithfully follow you and to be a good citizen. But if we have to make a stand, God, give us courage and strength. Help us not to make an idol out of safety, out of comfort, but instead bold hearts that are willing to follow you with character and conviction. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.